This section is on worship, and we, we, we use that word a lot, usually when referring to singing, which is a form of worship, because the word worship means to really bow before someone. And so when we sing, we're coming in his presence and, and lifting him up, so that is a form of worship. But worship goes way beyond that. It goes to what do I bow to? For some of us, we really do worship ourselves because we just surrender to our feelings, our desires, our pleasures, and we go, whatever my body wants, I'm gonna go after that. Others, we worship things like popularity, and, and we just bow down to people and what they want. Um, some of us, we just wanna fit into the culture, or we worship the country, or whatever else, but what God says is, look, I wanna be your first allegiance. So worship means you surrender to me. You, you say my ways are best and you gladly come under that type of leadership. And at the core of worship, that's what it's all about. I actually like the way Francis Chan kind of introduces worship, uh, about what it means um, that while there are outward expressions of worship that we have within the church that uh, we are free to bring to God, that worship really is uh, something much deeper. Um, worship has pretty much everything to do with how we live, how we live our life, decisions we make. Um, and the Lauren Daigle song simply asks about what do we have, what have we put first? Um, Tim Keller has written a book called Counterfeit Gods. Some of you may have read that book. Um, I will occasionally uh, refer to it. Um, I kind of like the way he talks about uh, things that we kind of buy into that we may not necessarily reference as gods or things that we worship but he would probably make a case for that in many ways we do. Old Testament says things like this, you shall have no other gods before me. Don't fashion them with your hands. Don't worship them. Don't serve them. Don't bow down to them. I am the Lord your God. I will be your God, and you will be my people. It's a recurring theme throughout the Old Testament. It's kind of a reminder that the prophets and other men of God continually had to speak into the children of God. A reminder that there is but one God whom you shall bow down to. It's interesting, um, a few weeks ago, I was on Thanksgiving, uh, Chris Weens was speaking, and we were talking about being thankful. Um, good friends gathering, somebody brought a reading that talked about thanks living, that probably thanks living is a good description of how we are to live our lives as children of God. And Chris asked the question on Thanksgiving that if, in fact, you do not believe in 
a God, a personal God, creator in heaven and earth, when you give thanks, who are you actually thanking? So often, people will make phrases like, well, they thank their lucky stars. That is kind of grasping at straws if you don't actually have someone to give thanks to. You actually replace it with things that are actually quite shallow and almost meaningless. In Jeremiah, the Old Testament, it says this, and this is, Men of God, speaking into the lives of the people of God, says, do not act like the other nations who try to read their future in the stars. Do not be afraid of their predictions, even though other nations are terrified by them. Their ways are futile. Their ways are foolish. They cut down a tree and a craftsman carves an idol. They decorate it with gold and silver and then fasten it securely with hammer and nails so it won't fall over. Their gods are like helpless scarecrows in a cucumber field. That's a fairly interesting description. They cannot speak and they need to be carried because they cannot walk. People who worship idols are stupid and foolish, but the Lord is the only true God. He is the living God and the everlasting King. In Acts 17, uh, roughly verses 23 to 31, when Paul is speaking, he says, The God who made the world and all things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all people life and breath in all things. Being then the children of God, so he's talking to us, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and I think for this morning, the second part of this is probably more apt, an image formed by the art and thought of man. Now, I think it's possible that to choose to disregard these verses as no longer being relevant, that they are meant for an earlier time, a more primitive culture that as enlightened people talk about idols is actually simply idol talk. Tim Keller, in his book, Counterfeit Gods, argues that our hearts are actually idol factories, that our hearts and minds are still very capable of fashioning our own idols. They may not be sculpted images, but they may be just as willing and just as able to control how we live and how we interact with the world. 
The temptation is and always has been to conform to the pattern and thinking of this world. In the Old Testament, Israel was always drawn to the lifestyle of nations around them. For us, the temptation will always to be drawn to the culture around us. And if that is true, what are the idols that our culture has fashioned? I would suggest that most of the idols of our culture have something to do with the pursuit of happiness and most of the idols of our culture are either self-focused or even perhaps self-indulgent. And they are fashioned from the thoughts of our hearts and minds. That likely in our culture, the idols that we actually bow down to and serve are fashioned from our hearts and from our minds. Our lives, I believe, quietly proclaim who and what we worship. How we spend our time, how we spend our energy are indicators of who and what we worship. Small decisions we make every day, our expenditures, the priorities we set as individuals and as families, speak to those things that are important in our life. They speak to things that are actually are our affections. And perhaps most importantly, those thoughts that preoccupy our mind during the day speak to the things that we likely are preoccupied with and perhaps bow down to. Timothy Keller says this in his book. He says, our hearts are idle factories, I-D-O-L, turning good things into ultimate things. Idolatry, no matter what that may look like, is always a form of deception. And who or what we will serve will inevitably control us. And I thought about this and I wondered why are we often so easily distracted by counterfeit gods? What makes them appealing? Firstly, I'm going to say they may appear to be worthwhile endeavors. You may look at some of them and say, you know what, that actually looks like a good thing. Secondly, Counterfeit gods tend to place man and his happiness front and center. In a way, they give us permission to cater to ourselves and perhaps even to indulge ourselves. There's a list, I'm hoping it's behind me shortly, of things that are good things that there is a danger for us to make ultimate things. So things like career, things like family, education, well, fitness. You can see the others on the screen, and you may say, though, there are others that you could add to that list. 
things within our culture, many of which would look to be good things that we can easily make ultimate things. These pursuits hold great power. These pursuits are more than capable of controlling us, and there are actually many in our culture who would readily admit that these actually represent the goals of their life, that their time, their energy, their resources, their thoughts are spent chasing after these things. And so, yes, to some extent, they may say, these are the things that I bow down to. These are the things that I pursue. These are the things that I worship. So they may appear to be worthwhile endeavors. Two, they seem to give permission to cater to self. Thirdly, Temptations under the sun generally tempt us because they are right in front of us. We can handle them. We can see them. We can touch them. And in some sense, we can actually, through our own effort, our own resources, we can make some of these things happen. And they may often provide temporary pleasure. But even when we would appear to have these things in abundance, and the writer of Ecclesiastes, as I mentioned last week, talked about this. Even when people would seem to have these things in abundance, there is something that they are looking for that somehow still seems out of reach. Dr. Robert Holden is a psychologist and I happened to come across an article that was published in Psychology Today. Uh, the article was called The Search for Happiness. And he makes a comment, and he had a phrase called destination addiction. Now, it's a, a phrase that he may very well have created, but it was a voice from culture talking about culture. And I just wanted to read a small section from it. He said, destination addiction is an attempt to get on with life faster in the hope that we will enjoy our lives better. And yet our constant speeding means we frequently run past golden opportunities for grace and betterment. We seek, but we do not find we are too busy running to be receptive. Hence, we always feel empty. We are addicted to the idea that the future is where success is, the future is where happiness is, and heaven is. Destination addiction is a preoccupation with the idea that happiness is somewhere else. And he says we suffer literally from the pursuit of happiness. Our goal is not to enjoy the day, it is to get through the day. We have to get somewhere else first before we can relax and before we can savor the moment. But we never get there. There is no point of arrival. We are permanently dissatisfied. The feeling of success is continually deferred. We live in hot pursuit of some extraordinary bliss. We have no idea 
how to find. I would simply call that food for thought. You could argue with it. You can take exception to some of the things, but there is something about that description of life that many people would say, oh my goodness, I can feel that. Someone this week uh, told me about a term that is used in marketing. It's called post-purchase cognitive dissonance. And he said it's the time between a purchase and the time that you all of a sudden no longer are satisfied with that purchase and need to find something else. And he said the goal of marketing is to actually make that time as short as possible so that you always need something more and for a while it kind of feels like that was awesome and then very quickly you realize I need something else. Luke 12 verse 15 says, watch out, guard yourselves against every form of greed, guard yourself against every form, you might say, of covetousness, for a man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. That runs so contrary to the patterns and thinkings of this world. The patterns and thinking of this world would say, your life does exist or your, your life does consist in the abundance of your possessions. And so we chase after them. It's why we still at times find the sparkly things of this world enticing. In fact, we want them very often for our own children. We make decisions based on our desire for our kids to have the good things of this world. And you might say, well, Doug, every good parent wants that. But Chris, uh, this last week when we, we met Chris Jeanette and myself, he actually suggested that in a, in, in a very real way, we sometimes make family and success of family the primary goal within our homes, more so than we do the pursuing after God. That unless someone actually says to me or to you, you need to stop and take a look at your life. What are you doing? What are you chasing after? Is your life under control or is your life controlling you? And unless we ask ourselves occasionally those questions about our own life, it's very possible that the good things, things that God made for us to enjoy, can become the silent master's that we serve without even realizing it. We face the challenge of putting the kingdom of God first in all things. We need to put the kingdom of God first in things that have to do with faith. The reality of God, the reality of my sinfulness, and the gospel of forgiveness through Jesus Christ. And most of us would say we embrace that truth. But we are also called to put the kingdom of God first 
in everything under the sun. The things that maybe in many ways preoccupy most of our time throughout the day are things we also need to put God first in. And usually that is the tension of our lives. That there is a spiritual aspect of who we are that we say, God, this is only from you. And we acknowledge the supremacy of God in that. And the challenge for us is to acknowledge the supremacy of God in all things. When we talk about the things we serve potentially becoming our masters, we are actually using language that Jesus himself used. This is the greatest goal of the good news of Jesus Christ. This is the goal of the Spirit of God in our lives to transform us by the renewing of our minds to truly serve and worship God, a God who in fact is jealous for our love. We are called to walk not by sight. In a sense, we said, don't be fooled by the shiny things under the sun. Instead, we are asked to walk by faith in God, who is over all, in all, and through all. And so is the God of your faith also the God who speaks into everything under the sun? Everything under the sun. I think if we examine ourselves, we need to confess that we too can find counterfeit gods alluring because they elevate self, and elevating self is always appealing. Ephesians 5, 15 to 17 talks about being on guard. So be careful how you live. Don't live like fools but live like those who are wise. Make the most of every opportunity in these evil days. Don't act thoughtlessly, but understand what the Lord wants you to do. In Lauren Daigle's song entitled First, she referenced seasons of life, and she talks about every season of life. She referenced pain and suffering. She referenced every moment in our lives that in all things and at all times, our hearts and minds would find rest, security, comfort, and strength in the reality and presence of God. That ultimately, Jesus is our treasure. Jesus is our great reward. Dwell on that and learn to trust God with everything under the sun. Thinking about that this week, I thought, you know, worship is not meant to be a balancing act. It's not about somehow balancing things under the sun with things that are spiritual. 
It is not how we are called to live. It is about worshiping God, acknowledging God. It is about asking and allowing God to speak into everything under the sun. And if you say why, I would say so that the good things that God seeks to give his children remain the good things without becoming ultimate things. That they are the good things that are added unto us because we are truly seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. You shall have no other gods before me. Don't fashion them with your hands. Don't worship them. Don't serve them. Don't bow down to them. I am the Lord your God. I will be your God. You will be my people. We can speak about this topic and it can sound like passing judgment on the church and I do not want us to feel that. But I think it's important to talk and to think about how we live, the thoughts that occupy our mind. I think it's good for us to examine ourselves and our priorities and to ask, is my life a living sacrifice of worship unto my God? I think the call to be true worshipers is to allow and in fact to ask God to be Lord over all things. All things under the sun. That truly if we bow down before him, we can trust him with everything. Someone sent me an email this week. And in that email, they talked about a life that was focused on things that were very much to do with things under the sun. The person has been placed into a season of life that can only be called a bit of a valley. But in that valley, this person talked about beginning to recognize the centrality of God in everything. And it's an email, in a way, I would love at some point to maybe show the whole church, but I would need to ask permission. But it was really somebody acknowledging that so easily my affections can be toward things of this world. And how easily our affections can be drawn away from God our Father. So I pray this week that we would continue to examine our lives and how we live. That our outward expressions of worship would come from a heart that simply longs to seek after God. To seek his face. To put him first. To pray into everything under the sun and say, God, I want you to be Lord 
of that as well. I'm going to pause there. Um, next week or maybe in a week or two, I, I want to focus specifically on how a lifestyle of generosity can be a beautiful expression of worship. Uh, generosity in things like time, generosity in terms of things like energy that God's given you, generosity in terms of financial blessings that God has given to you. Now, how we can turn these things which the world would say you need to stockpile, you need to hoard, you need to save, and how the Spirit of God would say you need to use these to bless the kingdom of God and people around you. So many ways of expressing our worship for God in practical ways. I'm going to invite Sean to come on back up. Um, and we will end. Just want to close in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, I give you thanks uh, for Jesus. Uh, Father, just again this week thinking about how much do I truly treasure the reality of God, the reality of the Spirit of God in my life. And I would say, God, help me each day to come before you as my God. Father, I pray that as individuals, as a church, we would truly be people who seek you, that we would be people who puts you first, that, God, we would see you and come to you with everything in our life, both blessings and trials, that we would bring them before your throne of grace and say, God, I want you to be God in all things. Father, help us to notice those things in our life that are counterfeit gods. Help us identify things, God, that take us away from you, that keep our minds from you. Father, would your spirit direct us back to Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. And so, Father, even this week, I just pray that your spirit of God would be working in our hearts and, Father, working in our minds, that, Father, we would truly allow you to transform us and to renew our minds, that we would dwell on things of God. We would not dwell on things of this earth. Leave them to you. Count them as blessings. Pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.